Amen. You can have a seat. If you've got your Bibles, turn them to John 3. In John 3, we are introduced to a man named John, most baptizer. If you grew up in church, you probably uh, picture John the Baptist as kind of like the felt board guy, or maybe you've watched the cartoons. He is the guy, usually has a lot of hair, uh, usually has like a big mane, uh, probably the best beard in the Bible of all the Bible characters for whatever reason. And he's clothed in camel hair, and he eats locusts and honey, and he likes to hang out in the wilderness, and then he invites people into the river so that he can hold them underwater for a little while and then raise them up. If you weren't raised in the church, think of maybe Haggard from Harry Potter. (laughs) That wasn't that funny, but we're laughing over here. So best I got this morning. Um, John the Baptist just doesn't seem to be a very funny guy, so we got to start out with that. But as we think about John the Baptist, I just want us to answer this question this morning, or just to think about the role that John the Baptist had, because we're going to be looking at him over the next two weeks. And the primary role of John the Baptist is basically to prepare the way for uh, the coming of Jesus, for the Messiah, to, to prepare, have people prepare their hearts and their minds, to have people get ready for Jesus to basically show up and to begin his ministry. That's what his role is, and that is what he's doing. And in some sense, uh, that is part of my responsibility, too, as a pastor, is to make sure that I am preparing people for not the first coming of Jesus Christ, but on this side of the resurrection, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to take a look at John And we're just going to take a real honest look at John over the next two weeks. I wanted this to be one sermon, and I got going, and this would be way too long, and people will be ready for lunch if I do that. I was going to skip a bunch of stuff, too, but I'm not going to. So if I I was just going to title, I'm going to title this sermon, title this sermon, The Radical Baptist and the Son of God, Part 1. The Radical Baptist and the Son of God, Part 1. And so if you have your Bibles, chapter 3, verse 1 here. It says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate began being the governor of Judea, and Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Etruria, and Traconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, why would I go through the trouble of reading all of that? Because Luke has put it there for a reason. Uh, The reason that this is here is because Luke wants us to know what he is writing is rooted in history. This isn't a a fairy tale. This isn't something that uh, he made up. For those of you who have been with us, what you know about Luke is that he is a doctor, but he's writing from, he's writing here as a historian, and he wants you to see that this happened in time in history. So what he gives us here is he gives us dates and he gives us people so that those reading the gospel can kind of go back and check on what he has to say and say, hey, did these events really happen? And as the church received this and they began to, to teach this, they received it and, and taught it as something that happened and something to understand, something to know, something to believe and something to res- respond to and how people decide to serve Jesus. And so that's why Luke puts all of that in there. But then he says, this. He says, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah of Zechariah. Now, 
John has a special place here in the New Testament. Uh, John has a special place in Luke. We see Luke writing about the, for, the, the, the coming of John as he writes about the birth narrative, not just of Jesus, but as John himself. And John is to be seen as a special person, kind of as a special prophet. The, the really the kind of last real prophet, the last prophetic speaker before Jesus shows up and starts his ministry. And he actually tells us he's the son of Zechariah, not just to remind us of what he told us about the birth narrative, of John, but if you read through the prophets, if you read through the Old Testament prophets, what what you'll discover is if you were to open Isaiah up, if you were to open Jeremiah up, if you were to open the book of Hosea up, they are going to say the word of God came to the son of. That way you know who they're talking about. And so what is what is happening here is Luke is setting John up as kind of this special prophetic speaker, this guy who is going to speak on behalf of God. Now, what we see happening here is God speaking then to John in the wilderness. What we know about John by being in the wilderness is that he is intentionally seeking God. The wilderness is a place that people go in the scriptures to intentionally seek and to meet God and to hear from God. You will see Jesus in all of the gospels. What he will do is he will go to be with people and then he will retreat to the wilderness so he can spend time with his father and so that he can hear from God. And so when we think about the wilderness here, we think about it as a place of special reflection and revelation from God. Going back even to the Exodus story, what you will discover is that God moves his people out of Egypt, out of the city of Egypt, out of serving there in Egypt, and he moves them through the wilderness before he gets them to the promised land. And what happens in the wilderness? That is where they receive God's word. That is where they receive the law. It's where they receive the Ten Commandments. It's where God speaks to them in a very real way. Now, some of you this morning may be here and you may be in a wilderness. You, you may be in a wilderness. And I, I want you to kind of see your wilderness. You may, like, you may even feel like, like, you're, like you're alone. You may feel abandoned. You may have felt isolated over this past year. I don't want you to see that necessarily as just a bad thing. A bad thing may have put you into the wilderness. But if you are maybe feeling alone, if you are maybe feeling isolated, if you are maybe feeling separated, here's what I'm going to encourage you to do, or here's what I hope that you have done over this past year. I hope you haven't wasted it. And I hope that you don't waste this time if that's where you are at. Instead, I hope that you will read a text like this. I hope that you will see how Jesus actually retreats to be in a wilderness. And I hope that you will take that time to respond to God. Now, John is special. There's, there's no doubt about that. Luke wants us to know that John is special. John is, is, is special in a way that you aren't. Sorry to tell you that. That does not mean that you are not capable of hearing from God. That does not mean that the Spirit of God does not or will not speak to you when you're in your wilderness. One of the beautiful things about the New Testament and about Pentecost is that when the Spirit is poured out on all people, 
uh, Peter is teaching and he says there's this prophecy in Joel that says at some point all of God's sons and daughters that, that they are capable of prophesying when the spirit is poured out. In other words, God's word is going to come to all people who receive the spirit and God is going to be able to speak to them and they are going to be able to speak on behalf of God to other people. So God can speak to you in the wilderness, and so be careful not to avoid it. If, if, like, you hate the wilderness, you hate being alone, you, you hate, like, turning things off, if you have to have kind of noise around you or people are around you all the time, I'm going to encourage you to actually take some time to retreat to get to it. This doesn't mean you have to go isolate yourself in the woods <laughs> somewhere, or by some random, random river or whatever it might be. It might be that's what you want to do. But what I mean by that is get to a place where you really are able to just be with the Lord. And in fact, I would, I would ask you to even treat this time like that. Obviously, we come together as a group, and this is a really good thing. I mean, worship is much better when the sanctuary is full. I mean, it just feels so much more meaningful and, and wonderful when there's a lot of people here. But there are moments where you really do have to shut everything off and just say, hey, this is, this is a time for me and God. I'm going to give my mind. I'm going to give my heart. I'm going to give my head, everything about me right now, and I'm going to listen for what the Lord wants to do in my life. And this is one of the reasons, I think a few weeks back, I encouraged you. I said, go ahead and bring your paper Bibles so that way you can kind of just shut off your phone. Uh, we were watching kind of... Um, just maybe some, some future things that we need to start thinking about as a church uh, uh, long term. And it was just kind of this conference and stuff. And one of the things that the speaker said, and I think he's right, is that within the next several years, uh, the, pre- pretty much the next AA will actually be for people who are just addicted to their devices. Right? And, and so, and I get it, right? I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm there. Right? So oh, I, I'll, the, the only reason I say this, and I get, what, by the way, I'm not anti-technology. We're using it right here. We're talking to everybody who's watching all of those sorts of things. It's a, technology is a beautiful thing, but if you can't leave it behind or you can't leave it in your car, even just to, to come to church, right, you may have a problem. <laughs> if, you're, if, if you need to know if somebody is reaching out to you, if somebody is trying to get a hold of you uh, more so than God, right? You may have a problem. You just might. Now, again, I'm not against you using your phones, even to read your Bible off of, you, off of but if it distracts you, be careful. Be careful. You see the church sometimes as your wilderness time. Because here's the thing, God speaks in the wilderness. And as John then comes out of the wilderness, what is going to happen is that he is going to have a message for others. So if you look at verse 3 here, he says, and he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming that baptism. John's name, or what we call John, is John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer. And so we call him that because that's what he does. John calls people to baptisms, and he baptizes people. So what does that mean? Well, in the Greek, and in every example, basically, we kind of have in the first century of baptisms means that you immerse people, that you take people and you put them under the water and then come up. A bat- baptism itself means immersion. And so that's why we, as a church, we, when we go to baptize people, this is how we do it. We 
take them and we put them under the water and we bring them up. And so we have a baptismal over here. Well, John is standing at the Jordan River and he's baptizing people. He's calling people to be baptized. But something must happen first before they're baptized. There's a prior action. The prior action is, for, is to repent for the forgiveness of sins. And so what does it mean to repent? What is John asking people to do? He's asking people to repent for the forgiveness of sins. Let's do this backwards here. He's asking them to repent of sin so that they can be forgiven for their sin. What does it mean to sin? Well, to sin means to miss the mark. I mean, that's kind of the, the idea or just kind of the direct translation in, in the Greek. We see it in the Hebrew as well. But I've always kind of found that, that, like, that just a little mundane or not really how the Bible describes it. For instance, like people have, have talked about it, used it like an archery. And it, so, a lot of you know that I, I'm, kind of, I'm an archer. I like to deer hunt. And so I have a bow I pull back, I shoot at deer, I also shoot at targets. Um, and I always thought, like, okay, so if sin is just missing the mark, like, that's really not that big of a deal. Right? Like, I, I've got some arrows behind the church. Don't tell people you're not really supposed to. I've always wanted to, I, I've wanted to bring my bow in here and shoot it, but it's actually illegal to shoot a firearm. It's considered a firearm in the city of Talmadge. Um, I do shoot behind the church. Don't tell the mayor. Um, but so, like, I've got, some, I've got some arrows where I've missed the target behind the church. And I thought, like, that's, it stinks because arrows are actually more expensive than what you think. And so that's why I've got, a, I've got a, a, a metal detector in my office right now so I can go out and find them after the snow gets out. <laughs> but but it's, it, it, it's, it's annoying, right, to miss the target. But at the end of the day, to lose an arrow, like, not a big deal. So I always thought, like, that's, a, that's an okay analogy, but it just doesn't seem like what the Bible is actually talking about when it talks about sin. You're aiming at a target, you miss a target. Okay, dang, man, that stinks. Shoot again. Um, see what happens. And, and this, this, is be, this is why, because the Bible doesn't really describe sin as it describes sin or teaches sin as simply shooting at a target and missing the target and making a mistake. Rather, the Bible describes sin in a way where you aren't really even aiming at that target. What you're doing, you're aiming at this target over here, and this target actually happens to be God. So you're not even aiming at the target you're supposed to be aiming at. Instead, you are actually firing arrows at God when you sin. Is the way that the Bible teaches us sin works. And so think about this for a moment. What would you consider somebody who was shooting at you? Your enemy, right? This is what sin does. When we are shooting at God, it actually, it makes us, it categorizes us as, as an enemy of God. Like we're, we're shooting at him. That's, that's, what, that's what sin is. And we're, we're like pushing, we're making sure he can't get close to us because we're trying to keep him away by telling him that like we don't want you near us. And we're, we've got like this war going on with God. That's what, that's what sin is. And it's always rooted in pride. It's always rooted in selfishness. And we're going to take a deeper look at this next week. But sin always involves lack of concern for other people. So you might not actually even see sometimes what it does to your relationship with God. Although I think most of us feel it. We know it. We experience it. We know when we are in sin and we know when we are fighting against God, what that is doing in our lives. But the way we often 
see it contextually is we see ourselves not just ruining our relationship with God, but we see ourselves ruining our relationship with other people because often what our arrows end up doing, we're shooting them at God, but they're hitting other people who are made in the image of God. And so we're destroying the very people that God has given us to love and to care for and the relationships that are or should be important to us. And so what John is teaching is this is what people are doing. And so he's asking them to respond in a particular way to their sin. And he's telling them to repent. In other words, he's telling you to stop aiming here and to start aiming here. It's literally to change your aim is what repenting means. It means to turn around, to start doing something else. That's what it is. Because John sees everybody as being responsible for where their arrows fly. If you ever go to a shooting range or anything like that, you know this. You you are the one responsible to make sure that the person beside you doesn't get shot with your arrow. That's your responsibility. And so what John is, is saying here is that if you don't want to be enemies with God forever, you need to change your aim. You need to do something. And he's asking these people who are standing along the side of the Jordan River, who he's calling to baptize, to repent. To repent. It's also permission here. Because he's saying, if you repent, when you repent, like God's going to forgive you. God doesn't want to be at war, and God's not going to be your enemy forever. That's not God's goal. God is gracious. God is Loving. And so when we repent, what he does is he offers forgiveness. And he offers forgiveness a lot quicker than any of us would, right? I mean, think about that. Somebody's shooting you with a, somebody is shooting at you. Somebody is ignoring you. Somebody is treating you poorly for most of their life. How quickly do you forgive them? Probably not very quickly. But John is saying, here, repent, and God offers forgiveness. And that is what baptism is. Baptism is to aim at a new life that looks at and for Jesus who promises forgiveness and washes away sin that you were once immersed in. So what about somebody, this is a question like going through here, what about somebody who has been baptized, they've said they've repented, but you know, they just seem to continue to sin? Well, I believe after reading Hebrews and a number of other things and even experience, right, I believe that you can kind of walk away from the Lord. Now, not everybody believes that, right? We have whole denominations like Baptists, <laughs> John the Baptist, who do not believe this. But I, I think the best way maybe to illustrate this, we're not going to get deep in the weeds here because it'll just take a long time, is so I grew up shooting. Uh, you can tell that now after hearing about uh, um, me shooting my bow. But we used to quite often in, in high school, we'd go and we'd dove hunt. And uh, we'd sit on the edge of this field and we would shoot at these doves that would fly over and we'd keep them and then we'd have a big cookout. And one day, me and my, fr- my friends and I were, were sitting there and we're, we're hunting and the doves like, are just staying right out of range. And they're actually like, across the cornfield by the woods on the other side. And so one of my friends and I were like, we're, we're done sitting here. We're going over there. Well, the problem with over there is the guys whose property we're on, he didn't own the other property. And he was, did not want us to go to this other property. Now, we knew who owned the other property. We just didn't have written permission. And so we're like, oh, they're not going to care. We're just going to go to this other property. And so my buddy and I, we leave three of our buddies behind, and we start walking 
uh, to this other property where all the doves are staying just safely out of uh, range. And as we take off walking, all of a sudden we hear shooting. And what's going on? And we can, we can like feel, we're starting to get hit now. And I, I don't know if you, if you never shot a shotgun when you're with birdshot, you, you probably don't understand that or you just haven't realized this, but basically a shotgun shoots a lot of BBs out, like a lots, lots of pellets and it's got to spread. And if you get far enough away, it slows down a little bit and it just will spread. And, and we had car arts on, it was cold. And so they start hitting, he starts hitting us in the back. And my friend starts yelling, come back. He obviously does not have a good temper. Um, and he's yelling at us to come back, come back. And we're yelling, we can't even turn around. Like you're shooting at us. What's going on here? And he's yelling at us, come back. And we're trying to yell back. Like we can't turn around. We can't come back. Because he has started to shoot at us. We wanted to get back to him, but we couldn't. My, my point is this. Sometimes what happens is that we, we decide that we're going to follow Christ or we decide that we're going to follow the Lord and then we begin to kind of shoot at him again and we want him to be close and we want him to come back and we want him to be in our life and our relationship continues to kind of get further and further away and continues to get more and more difficult, and if you get angry enough at the Lord, and if you decide to kind of turn your back, it's not that, this is a bad analogy in this way, is I walked away from my friend, God would never walk away from you, but if we continue to keep him at a distance, eventually, like, our hearts grow cold, and eventually we turn from the Lord, and all of you probably know somebody who has done something like that. Now, like I said, if you're Arminian or Wesleyan, like me, you believe that sort of thing can happen. If you're Baptist or Calvinist, you believe that they were never saved in the first place. Both people are able to be a part of our congregation. Whatever you believe, whatever you believe, God is calling all of those in sin to repentance at any particular time. And John makes that clear. Verse four, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness Prepare, a way, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall be, become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. So John here is quoting Isaiah. And basically what he is reminding us of uh, here is that God is coming. And that everyone, everyone is going to see Christ here. Everyone is going to see God, and he's preparing them for that. He uses a geographical metaphor here. So he's talking about these paths being made straight, valleys being filled, mountains being leveled, and basically what he is trying to say is that every obstacle to seeing God is going to be removed. And what God is doing is he's He's moving heaven and earth so that everyone will be able to see the Lord. And I think we see this played out with the Great Commission as, as people are, go, are sent. After Jesus comes, people are sent throughout the earth and everybody is beginning to hear about the world, or about the Lord. There are still people groups who need to hear about Jesus. But for the most part, this is happening and has been happening 
throughout history. But as he talks about this and as he uses this, again, what he is trying to make sure that people understand here is that everyone needs to be prepared because God is making a way to make himself known to all people. Now, who needs to be prepared when they read this? What is God actually talking about? Is God, I told you this is a metaphor, is God actually going to level mountains? No. Is he actually filling up valleys? No. So what is he talking about? He's talking about people. And this is one of the things that makes John really radical. I said this, I'm just calling this the radical Baptist. Next week, we're going to say some things or hear some things that makes John even sound much more radical than this. But what John is speaking about here is he's speaking about people. He's speaking about people who are trying to fight against God. He's speaking about people who have not humbled themselves before God. He's speaking about people who want to continue to sin and want to continue to shoot at God. He's speaking about people who are trying to keep other people from hearing about God or being prepared for God to come. One of the stories that I will never forget, uh, I experienced at an FCA here in Talmadge. Uh, I've got, I used to go to FCA a lot when they were allowed to have it before COVID. And uh, I've heard a lot of messages at FCA. I have forgotten probably 95% of them. This one I will never forget. As a young girl, her family was from the South Pacific. Uh, she was Asian. And they had moved originally, I think they were refugees, and they had moved uh, to Wisconsin. And while in Wisconsin, they were in a, a new place, a, a new country, obviously, a new language, new customs, all of that. And when they got there, there were groups of Christians inviting them in their home, feeding them and, and trying to uh, help them to assimilate and, and get jobs and do all these sorts of things. Well, the, the, the father resisted these, these, this help for the most part, but the, the mom and the daughters, they gravitated towards these Christians who were trying to help them and welcome them into this place. And eventually all these people started to invite this new family to church and uh, to be a, a part of uh, their church family. And, and so they went a couple times, but the dad didn't like it because in this, in this culture, uh, uh, the, the um, family worship and, and ancestry worship is really venerated. And so to become a Christian, basically you're kind of leaving all of that behind. You're worshiping Christ and Christ alone. And so they would, to become Christians, what they would have had to do is reject the faith of their ancestors and begin this new faith. And so the father got to the point where he was keeping his family from going to church. They were not allowed to attend. They were not uh, allowed to go. They weren't really allowed to do much or get out of the house much anymore. And he was restricting the family a great deal. And the girl at FCA, she's telling us this story. And she said, um, within a few years, my dad got really, really sick. And uh, we got in a lot of trouble uh, financially because he was the head of the household and he was providing for our family. And as he got sick, this group of Christians, they helped provide for us and helped walk us through his illness. And she said, eventually, that my dad died. And, you know, you're just listening to this teenage girl talk about the bring you to tears and, and just feel awful for this young girl. And then she said this, and, and I will never forget this. And some of you are going to, I don't even know how you're going to hear this. 
But she said this to the, to the class. I think this girl ended up being valedictorian or salutatorian of her class. She said, the Lord took my dad so that we would become Christians. You see, her dad refused to humble himself. And for her, she saw the Lord taking him away so that she could become a follower of Christ. Now, I don't know how all of that works or if, if, that, like, if that was certainly God's intention. It's, it's really hard to understand what happened, why things happen the way they happen. But I do think, as we think about this story, it's a good reminder that we cannot stand in the way of God. God is undefeated. And as we look at what Isaiah says, or what John says through Isaiah here, it talks about the God of all creation. Humbling everyone who is not prepared for him to come. God is undefeated. There's nothing that can get in his way. And it always makes me really sad. Right? Sometimes it makes me really even angry when I hear about husbands who get in the way of their wives wanting to seek the Lord and come to church. Sometimes when we're teens, or maybe not even teens, right, you might be in a dating relationship and you start going too far, you start feeling guilty, whatever that might be, and all of a sudden either the boyfriend or girlfriend, like, I don't know if we want to go to church. This, this other stuff over here, like, we can't, we can't, they know something's wrong inside of you, we can't keep doing both. Parents, and when I was in youth ministry, Right? My biggest obstacle was parents. I'll just tell you that. We, most of my ministry was a lot of non-unchurched kids. My biggest obstacle, without a doubt, was parents. I've talked to some of you and worked, with this, uh, worked through some of this with you with employers sometimes. Right? Like they will schedule you on Sunday because they know you're a Christian. But John is reminding us here, and he's reminding everybody. He's reminding all of us here this morning that God is not somebody to be messed with. And so to make your paths straight. John is saying that when God shows up, those who are proud and arrogant have no need and have no need for God will be humbled. This is John's message. This is a really sobering message. That passage in Isaiah that John quotes says this, everyone will see and be offered salvation. It doesn't say that everyone will receive salvation when God shows up or, or ha- he, that they will receive it. He says everyone will see it. And so everyone will see it. Everyone will hear about it. And there's coming a time where everyone will see it. When Christ returns, everyone is going to see the salvation of our God. But not everyone will receive it. And this is the story we see in the scriptures. 
going back to the Exodus again, before God brings the people out of the wilderness, before God brings the people out of the wilderness, God sends Moses to Pharaoh. Pharaoh has a front row view to the salvation that God is going to provide to the Hebrew people. Moses continues to go to Pharaoh and he shows Pharaoh how great God's salvation is, how great God is. He does all of these miracles he, he, and these plagues are poured out on, on the people, on Pharaoh's people. And what happens to Pharaoh as he watches Moses perform these miracles or God perform the miracle through Moses? Moses' heart is hardened. It's hardened. He further rejects God instead of receives God. And unfortunately, what happens is not only does Moses suffer, but the people around him suffer. The people that God has given him in his position in life to help thrive as their leader. Pharaoh, the leader of the largest uh, dynasty, country, uh, whatever it might be, in the world. He allows his people to suffer instead of turning to God. And what John is saying as he's standing on the banks of the Jordan wanting to baptize people is really simple. Don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. John is asking his audience to be prepared for God to show up. Are you prepared? Are you prepared? John's baptism looks forward to Jesus, and we too must understand what God is calling us to. The Christian, the Christian message is still one of repentance. We are to repent in light of Jesus. And what that means is that we are to no longer make Jesus the target of our sin. To repent in light of Jesus is to believe that Jesus was, though, the target of our sin. And so we see now on the other side of the coming of Christ that Jesus actually, all, this, all of our sin, we're actually like, we're shooting it at Jesus. He was our target. And what's incredible is that Jesus let us reject him. And he died for us to show us how destructive our sin is. When we look at the cross, what we're supposed to see, we see an empty cross because we're Protestants and we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday, but we're also supposed to see how destructive our sin is and to be reminded that our sin put Jesus on the cross, that Jesus on the cross takes on our sin for our forgiveness, to offer it to us. And no matter, no matter what you've shot at God, no matter what you've done, no matter what kind of arrows you have thrown, like some of you have like exploding arrows like in, in Rambo, Whatever it might have been, whatever it might have been in your past, while Jesus is on the cross, that's where we're supposed to see it that way, what Jesus is asking us to do is just lay all those down at the foot of the cross. Lay it down because he offers forgiveness. He offers it. You don't have to continue to do and be what you've always been. God is calling you to repentance. The Christian message of repentance also means that Jesus is our target in a positive way now. 
What I mean by that is that as we look at Jesus and as we aim for Jesus, we're aiming to live like Jesus. That's what it means to repent. It means I'm, I'm going to stop shooting at him and now I'm going to, I'm going to look at him and I'm going to follow him. I'm going to walk towards him. I'm going to do what Jesus calls me to do. I'm going to be who Jesus calls me to be. And I'm just going to keep heading in that direction until either Jesus returns and I'm prepared for his coming because I've been following him or until I take my last breath. Repentance is still essential for the Christian message. When we repent, that's what it means. It means that we are preparing to meet Jesus. We are, repa- we are preparing to meet Jesus. Now, it's the first Sunday of the month, and it's Communion Sunday, and I just want to say a few things before we take communion together. We're going to take communion together, and you can start opening that while I'm saying that. But if, kind of eyes up here, if, if you have, have never repented and decided to follow Jesus, if you've never repented and asked for the forgiveness of your sins and never and decided to follow Jesus, I would ask you right now, has God spoke to you? Has God spoke to you? Is he calling you to repentance? Is, is, he, is he calling you to follow Jesus? Is he calling you to give your life to Jesus? Is he calling you to turn around? Don't waste this opportunity. Treat this time like you are in the wilderness and God is speaking directly to you, if that is you. Repent and believe on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Because he will save you, he will forgive you, and he will turn your life around. For the rest of us, maybe... Those of you who have already done it, you've repented, you've believed in Jesus. As we take communion, if we were to read the entire section in 1 Corinthians, what you would discover is that Paul, as he writes to the Corinthian church, he's asking all of us to examine ourselves, to examine our hearts, to examine our lives, to ask, right, are we living lives of repentance when we find ourselves uh, sinning or turning our backs on God? He's saying, take this time to think about that. Not only that, take communion. When we get to the end, what we discover in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26 is that we are to do this until when? Until the Lord comes again. We are to remember Christ's death for the forgiveness of sins together as we take his broken body and drink his blood poured out for us until Jesus comes again. We are to be reminded that we have been forgiven of our sins so that we would not continue in it. And so maybe some of you here this morning, as the Lord was speaking to you, there's just something in your life that you need to give to the Lord, that you need to repent of, that you need to turn from, and you need to turn to Jesus so that you'll be prepared when he comes. Say, yes, Lord, I have been following you. What is the Lord saying to you this morning?
How's the Holy Spirit speaking to you concerning that? Paul wrote to the Corinthian church this, and he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's drink. Father, we come to you this morning. We know you're good. Because even when we're not good, you're good. Everybody in this room has been forgiven of of so much. And we thank you for that. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your salvation. And we thank you for how we have seen it in Jesus Christ. I pray this morning, Father, for us all. I pray that you would bring any sin, habit, attitude, or action to our heart, to our mind, to us right now, and that we all would repent of it. That we all would turn to Jesus and walk towards him and away from our sin. We can do so. We can walk towards you, Father, because we do not have to be afraid of you. You offer forgiveness and you are kind and you are gentle and you are loving. And so, Father, may we embrace that. For others here this morning, Father, maybe they listen to this message and they realize that they might not be a child of God, they may not be a friend of God, but rather they're an enemy of God. They're living a life full of sin and rejection. They're maybe even keeping other people from pursuing God. And I believe through your word this morning, Father, you are calling them to repentance and you are calling them to faith in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit that you would speak to them right now and that you would draw them to you that they would repent of their sins and receive the forgiveness that you offer through your son, Jesus Christ, through his shed blood on the cross. And if there's anybody in earshot of me right now who feels like God is speaking to them directly at this moment and is calling them to repentance, I pray that they would do that right now in their hearts and in their minds that they would turn from sin and turn 
towards Christ, that they would know that you will receive them, that you forgive them, that you can make them new, that you can make them whole. We pray that salvation may take place today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.